Welcome to Oh This World. This is a podcast for those inclined to take action. In season one, we identified what each of us can do as individuals to hold our elected officials accountable in the age of coronavirus. Now, with an election approaching, we're focused on the big picture. For the rest of 2020, we will dedicate each month to an urgent issue facing Texas and America. We will interview activists, thinkers, and citizens about how to engage on the biggest challenges facing the country. And we will spotlight a book that tackles each topic head-on. I'm Antoinette Perez. And I'm Lucas Schaefer. We're friends, engaged citizens, and activists here in Austin, Texas. Our mission is to help Texans and people across the country build an America that leaves no one behind. So wash your hands, grab a drink, and join us for Oh This World. Welcome back to Season 2 of Oh This World. I'm Antoinette Perez, and I'm here with Lucas Schaefer. We're back. Lucas! Hello, hello. It's been it's been an age. It's been what a month? It's five been, weeks. Yeah, oh, five what? or six weeks now. It's been a very hot minute. It's about a hundred and seven yeah. degrees yeah. today. Yeah. So, um, how are you? How are you, Antoinette? I'm doing pretty great. How are you doing? Good. We've missed this. This uh, this world journey that we started back at the beginning of quarantine, and here we still are kind of in quarantine, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's Here great. we still are doing that thing that we do because we are law-abiding citizens that care about our, our fellow community members, like people who listen to this podcast. Woo! Woo! I've missed your woo. I haven't done one, and that's just not how I... I don't normally just say to my husband, woo, um, (laughs) as we're sitting watching (laughs) Shit's Creek. Um, No. (laughs) What have you been up to since we started our hiatus five or six weeks ago? You know, I've... We've continued with our voice lessons, uh, not yet ready to debut for the uh, This World listeners, uh, writing, thinking, working, cooking. Ugh, I'm so sick of cooking. Oh god. <laughs> um, Poor <you> know? Lucas. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Of all the of all the things, um, you know, have continued to keep some tabs on certain uh, characters in our congressional districts. And been invited as a guest speaker for other candidates for office for our congressional district. Yes, I've had, we've had all sorts of fun speaking things. Lucas uh, got to share basically everything from episode 37 of season one with a group of activists yes, yes. a couple weeks ago. Yes, so that that's was great. very exciting. And if you yeah. don't know what episode 37 of season one, if that's not just... Ringing bells for you. <laughs> <laughs> that that was our deep dive into the current congressman in uh, Texas 21 here, our congressional district, and why we should all be supporting his fantastic opponent, Wendy Davis. However, woo. Woo, our uh, mission has not exactly changed with season two, but we have a little bit of a new for we're trying something new. Yes. We're mixing it up. So Antoinette, what for the for all of those slackers who somehow missed the trailer for <laughs> season two last week. Riveting trailer. What were you all doing? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what is 
what's 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 up for this season? Our format is a weekly podcast episode, a new episode every week, but we're really grouping those episodes in fours. So each four episodes will revolve around a topic that's sort of uh, inspired by a book. Um, I really do think of this as like a book club kind of format, but to that point, really only one of every four episodes will be a book discussion. And then the other three will be interviews with um, other folks who have experiences with thoughts on um, whatever that topic is for for that four session arc. Can I tell people the most exciting part? Yes. Okay, so... In a in a book club, right? Obviously, everyone comes and says what they think about the the book, what their experiences were with the book. So you're listening to the first episode right now. If you listen to the preview, you would know that the first book we're talking about is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And you may be thinking, well, I haven't read this book, so how am I participating in the book club? And this, I'm going to tell you right now, Antoinette, this is a childhood dream of mine. It has come to life. It has come <laughs> It has come to life because Antoinette and I today are going to talk about the book, reflect on the book, share some criticisms we've heard about the book, all of these things. Then we're going to have some interviews and fun things with other people related to book, the book. And then in the fourth episode, we are going to share reflections, thoughts, etc. from our listeners about this book. And the way we will do that is we have set up a hotline. <laughs> and the hotline, this is the best part. I'm not kidding, Antoinette. When I was a child, I dreamed of the day. I didn't know how it would happen. But the hotline involves a phone number that spells out a word. It's a vanity word specially selected for one Lucas Schaefer. So let's hear the phone number, Lucas. When you want to leave a comment for us, so this is reflections on the book or some other things. which Or we're gonna, reflections on the topic in general. Or on the topic. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I think we're going to ask some questions mm -hmm. throughout these next few weeks that may spur some thoughts for yes. you, right? Yes. So it's not just a random, you know. Right. Thoughts, memories, experiences you want to share. Yes. Mm -hmm. There are going to be more specific questions, just like in a book club. Wow. Right. right. Okay. Everyone write this down. I'm going to say this like a million times, though. <laughs> over and over. 702-907-RAGE. <laughs> That's... Even the that's, I've been excited to say that, that's 702-907-RAGE. And you can call this number and then, you know, leave your message answering the questions we're going to ask. And then we are going to play some of them on the air. Maybe all of them. Who knows? So last season, an enterprising listener suggested early, early, early that Lucas and I consider taking our video recording of these podcasts and posting them to YouTube to share with the world. And we had such a heavy production schedule that it felt like it was probably too much of a commitment to take on one more thing. 
However, during the hiatus, it appears that several more people have stepped up to make this recommendation, and we're kind of toying around with it. Um, And the reason why I wish that YouTube was maybe a thing today is that I would like for you to have seen Lucas's face when he was talking about the hotline because it was gold. I've never seen Lucas that excited, enthusiastic on his face for that long ever and it's it's gorgeous the eyebrows do a lot of the communication well and, I and want frankly you to see that frankly we might have put this one on youtube as well but I, my background is not up to part you know when i did that when i did that little zoom talk a couple weeks yes. ago about yeah the that topic um yeah. we i had did you you were on there. Did you see my new backdrop? It was a lot better. It looked like a different setup for sure. It looked like yes, a cozy library. Cozy library. Our, we have a My Beautiful Laundrette like framed poster up. It was very nice. But now I'm back to the, the sad room. So <laughs> all of this is to say, if you want to experiment with the hotline, let us know if you would watch on YouTube. Give us right. a call. Leave us a message. Let us know if you think that YouTube is a good idea for these. Maybe you'd prefer to watch it as a video. If the hotline is not as appealing to you as it is to me, or if you want to save your hotline talk for something related to the book, not that you can't call more than once, you can. Uh, we also are at oh, this world pod at gmail.com. But if they did want to leave a voicemail, what's the number again? Oh, boy. The number is 702-907-RAGE. That's 702-907-RAGE. Okay. Great. Well, let's talk about one more set of expectations. A big reason why this format for season two was chosen is that we have every expectation that our listeners are hustling on action. We focused so much in the first season on an action we could take every single episode. We're pretty sure that folks at this point are working on getting more voters registered. They're working on mobilization plans to get voters to the polls in November and earlier and by mail. And the post office, which we're not going to talk about today, uh, and getting good people in office. So maybe donating even if you're able. And given that, um, we're just kind of taking a bigger picture sort of view of our work as activists. Yes. And this is like, you know, we had so much about individual actions to hold elected officials accountable and to elect better people last season. Mm-hmm. If I, I hope this isn't the case for anyone, but if if you haven't you know, started that volunteering with a campaign and that's on the agenda and it should be on the agenda. Now it's kind of the, this is the, this is, this it. is the moment. We're within a hundred days. Got, we got to go. We're within 80 days. And can I also just say it is pretty, it's not funny, but we started this podcast. The first ever episode back in April was called save the post mm-hmm. office. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about it today, but Mm-mm. here we are. Mm-hmm. The post office still needs saving. so They do. They need stamps, and they do need some phone calls. So we'll probably put those in the show notes um, lots, for right now, yes, though. Lots to do. We're moving Our talk on. today is about the book White Fragility, author Robin D'Angelo. 
And again, before we jump into that, just a reminder, if you have experiences with white fragility, the book or the topic, um, you can always just give the hotline a call, share that, and we will plan to maybe spotlight some of those in the fourth episode in this arc. So um, let's start off with the book, White Fragility. Um, Up until June of this year, this was still a pretty popular book in a lot of progressive circles, but I would say it was limited to progressive circles. I didn't hear work book clubs talking about it like I do now. I didn't see it at the top of the bestseller lists like you see it now. And it's a deal, isn't it? It's a deal. People, Did you say it's a deal? Yeah. I mean, like, it's a big deal. People know what oh, yeah. this book is. They know who Robin D'Angelo is now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, she's everywhere. The book was, I, I think, a, at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And, yes. And yes. that's part of why we we chose it. It's like, oh, everyone's, re- like, I'd never read it before. I don't think you'd read it before. I had Antoinette. Not. It was kind of like, well, everyone seems to be reading this, so we might want to see, like, what's yes. what's in it. And we talked about, in a previous episode, Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. Yes. which. T- touches on some similar um, things, but that book is really a memoir of mm-hmm. her evolution her and her experience yeah. of understanding kind of how whiteness, her whiteness works in, in the world. Whereas this is really more a, what would you call it? Well, that's actually a great segue into this book jacket copy. Uh, one of the, the, ideas that I had had for the book discussion episode in each four episode series was for us to write kind of a fake book jacket cover description of the book. And it was just a summary, kind of a kicking off point to highlight what our big takeaways were from it. And um, I I wrote one, and I'm, I'm not really sure what Lucas thinks about it. I think you previewed it. I'm a little concerned that it's it may come across somewhat flippant, and yet, um, I don't know, I think it kind of captures the main let's, point. Let's hear it. I mean, I read it quickly, but I, I needed to, you know, we're a podcast, okay. so I needed to hear it. Let's just pretend that you have picked up this book at the library, and you read the book jacket copy, and it was written for you, an activist. You're a white person who's experienced the initial awakening to structural and personal racism that Debbie Irving details in her memoir, Waking Up White. But are you really woke yet? Author Robin DeAngelo thinks probably not, and she stares unflinchingly in your direction. In her book, White Fragility, she takes specific aim at the white progressive, who sees some injustice and points their finger elsewhere. D'Angelo won't stop grabbing your fist and pointing your finger at yourself. She will do so with endless bullet point lists, instructive but fairly dry anecdotes, and real-life interactions with well-intentioned and ultimately racist white folks like you and a shocking lack of structure and flow. And she won't stop looking away until you agree to examine the cold, hard reality facing America today. We live in a white supremacist society, and it's still all white people's fault. Until you agree to get uncomfortable examining how you benefit from the privilege of being white— Stay uncomfortable understanding all the ways that your silence makes you complicit in the oppression of every black American, and I do mean all the ways, 
in multiple bullet point lists and commit to changing your ways and doing what's right even when you feel unsafe, quote unquote, D'Angelo will not stop putting this in your face. There's a gradual woke experience and then there's this book. When you finish reading this in your all-white book club, pay special attention to who walks out ready to change and who walks out in denial. I like that. What? That's not. What? Why is that flippant? I don't know. I mean, uh, if we talk about the some of the structural issues that I had and some of the pickier issues that I had, some of the things that didn't work for me were just the penchant for long bullet point lists of things. I mean, pages of bullet point lists. You know, excuses I love a that people make. You like the bullet. I love yeah, a bullet. It's a personal a choice. Point. So yeah, that that felt a little flippant to me, and I'll apologize to Ms. D'Angelo right now. Well, I think she's doing fine. It looks like she's doing fine. Um, <laughs> she is. So, Antoinette, w- when we were recording the trailer for this, I had mentioned that there, I had heard there was a lot of criticism of this book. And mm-hmm. like a good podcaster, I had both not read the book nor read the criticism. <laughs> So had absolutely no idea what I was talking about, but decided to just throw that out there. And it was interesting reading it because, you know, much like Waking Up White, I I found this to be a really useful 101 on some of these issues as as white people. I'm saying as as I am a white person, I'm not I'm not uh, calling you a white person, Mm -hmm, Antoinette. mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> but but you have was, questions about that later. <laughs> well, I do have questions about that later. But I was like, I, I wouldn't say I found the book like benign. Um, but having kind of talked about some of these issues last season, having done some other reading, you know, I I was curious what the criticism was because mm-hmm. it didn't seem. I didn't read it and just think, oh God, here we go. She's so off the mark. Yeah. Right. And so there was some really interesting criticism of the book, um, and we'll post up some of it. There was a New York Times. Did you read any of the criticism? No, I didn't. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm just going to say one bit of criticism that I just thought was silly. Is that okay? And I want to hear it. Yeah. Well, okay. So there was a lot of what I thought was good criticism of the book. And obviously, we'll talk about what's in the book as well, instead of just what People. What other people have to say about it? <laughs> what other people have to say about it? But the thing I I thought was not that helpful in terms of criticism was there were some people um, on the left who just kind of were like, "Well, this is a corporate trainer, and there's kind of money to be made off of this." And like, you know, you read a little bit of her biography, and I mean, there was definitely a lot of. It wasn't like she. I don't know. I just thought it was sort of a silly, it was a way to not talk about what's actually in the book. Yeah, probably a way to not talk about how they should be looking internally, which is exactly yeah. what she's saying to do. Yeah. And so the criticism, I'm not going to go into detail now. We're going to post in the episode notes um, a Washington Post book review um, that had some really kind of, I, I thought, interesting stuff. Um and also a New York Times, the New York Times, uh, Daniel Bergner had in July a profile of Robin D'Angelo and some other anti-racism 
workers and that that article is not so much criticism as it's it's looking at if this sort of training actually works works um but some of the thrust of the criticism also had to do with um this idea and i know like the congressman and Texas 21 saw something not from this book, but saw something similar about this and like started to like lose his mind Mm -hmm. earlier in the summer. Mm -hmm. But this idea that there are like characteristics of whiteness, Hmm. right? That white people behave in certain ways as Mm -hmm. a group. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is that, uh, does that create too much of a binary? Is that too, simplistic um you know another criticism of the book that i read that i thought was kind of interesting was you know she gives examples of people uh kind of not not answering her questions directly as being an example of white fragility but is that always the case i mean it's interesting stuff so i don't think we're going to focus on it that much in this hour, but I do want people to be aware just this isn't like an advertisement for for the book, obviously. It's just no. a discussion of the book. But That's right. I just wanted people I, I like to people to be aware that there are ideas out there that should be acknowledged, should be read, etc. Good. All right. Um, We are going to take a breath. When we come back, Lucas and I will dig into our own personal thoughts and reflections on the book White Fragility. That was the most Lucas opening in that we started very little summary just straight into the criticism, which I don't, who knows, does the criticism even make sense before we've really talked about the book? Probably not. But had to just get, I just like to get it out there. We've it's off our chest. It's off your chest. It's off my chest. Um, so mine was fine going. So there you go. If you if you like me like to read pointed criticism of a book before you even read the book, uh, you're all set. Okay. So what we did, Antoinette, is. Um, and we should just say, typically with these, we're the first episode of an issue is going to be you and I talking about the book, having our own little mini book club, right? So that's what we're right. going to do now. Um, right. And then we'll be branching out the conversation with other other people in uh, the other episodes in the month. But what we decided to do was to write some questions for mm-hmm. each other. That's right. Um, in our mini book club. So do you want to do you want to ask first? Yeah, um, we'll do that. Okay. Um, Robin DeAngelo writes in about five or six different sections of the book mm-hmm. about what she calls racially coded language, uh, racially coded terms where um, well-intentioned, polite folks talk about blackness, but they mm-hmm. don't use direct language to do so. So um, the the types of words that she's referring to when she says racially coded are things like urban, underprivileged, diverse, sketchy neighborhood or good neighborhood to mean the reverse, right? Um, it got me thinking when I read it that I, I have heard all these words before and I have used them and I never read 
any racial coding into it, nor do I build racial coding into it when I use it, I don't think. Um, so a quick example of that is, you know, when I was growing up in Las Vegas, um, I lived in a you know lower middle class neighborhood in an area of town that's definitely considered the suburbs. But we had like 10 high schools, for instance, at the time that I lived there. Mm-hmm. And when people would talk about the inner city urban high schools, I quite literally thought about the two high schools that flanked the perimeter of downtown. And when people would say things like, you know, these are, um, you know, higher crime high schools or whatever, it made sense to me because there was more crime and homelessness right around downtown. None of it ever equated to me as a racial issue or that people were talking in racial terms. So I have I've grown up and I've lived my entire adult life using some of these words and actually meaning them in a literal way. I think this is one of the reasons why dog whistling is still sort of new to me as a practice that people engage in and why I am working so hard to increase my sensitivity to it. Um But I think you've been sensitive to, you know, coded language and dog whistling for a long time. So I'm particularly curious about your time as a teacher. And I'm wondering if the education space has its own racially coded language. Um, And kind of to that extent, you and I met through organizing spaces. And frankly, we've talked before about how they are quite white Um, So have you noticed any racially coded language in, like, our organizing spaces as well? Um, Not to put you on the spot. Oh, my God. I have so about this, including one of the things I really do like about this book that I think that I have been trying to keep in mind and knowing I need to even keep more in mind is that Mm -hmm. Well, intentions, intentions are kind of irrelevant compared to the impact yes. that your your whatever you're doing or saying has. So I just you said said well intentioned. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that yeah. in there. Um and also, Antoinette, mm-hmm. you were a little bit prescient. Is it prescient? Is it prescient? I always say Who prescient, knows? but I don't know if that's correct either. Prescient? I just, it's a word I don't say aloud. How but was I, I like prescient? Pre- well, prescient. you had in the dog whistle episode brought up this Lee Atwater oh, right. quote about coding, which mm-hmm. is in White, White fragility. fragility. I won't say the page number because this book has sold so many copies recently that I think there are all of like these different. Yes. Editions um, and yeah, page numbers and whatever. Um, Reprints. Okay, so a couple of things. One, I'm going to answer the first part of your question first, and then the second part. Second, oh, that's okay. that's quite logical. Um, <laughs> Do it. I feel like the reason I'm I was a little more attuned to coding, and I, you know, my guess is being studying American history in mm-hmm. in college and then teaching. U.S. history, it's so entwined mm. with, you know, the Southern strategy, and mm-hmm. it's just entwined with everything. So I, I definitely feel like I've been on the lookout um, for it 
a little, although it, it is true. It's, I mean, that quote exemplifies it where he's talking about, you know, Lee Atwater saying, oh, we used to say racial epithets. We can't say them anymore. So now we talk about welfare. We talk about all of this other stuff and it's, it's code. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I do think it's hard, you know, hard sometimes to know if someone's not telling you that this is kind of what what the deal is. But in terms of the education space, well, first of all, I taught in private school. So that's talk about a racially coded <laughs> language. I mean, the private school exists pretty much with some exceptions. Um, you know, the original kind of incarnation of private school was to have a place where white people with money could go to not be around black people and people of color and people without money. So um, what's funny teaching in private school, and actually a lot of my exposure to some of these ideas came from during my teaching career going to a couple of different conferences, workshops, et cetera, but one in particular um, specifically about, about some of these these issues. And I mean, the funny thing in private school is it's not very diverse. Exactly. So there's a lot of, but it's good liberal, you know, we're good liberals, we're good progressives. So there's a lot of talk about diversity, multiculturalism, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, is there a coded, I'd say everything's coded, you know, Mm. I, I mean, it's the whole enterprise is sort of coded, um, in a way, because, wow. you know, you wouldn't – I mean, the, the way to achieve integration, the way to achieve equity, the, the way to achieve the things we're talking about is to not have private school, to right. not right. enroll your kids in private school, to not right. teach in private school, which I did for um, years. Um Although, of course, there are people of color and black people both teaching and learning now in private schools. Um, so that's something to consider as well. And then in progressive spaces, also quite pretty pretty white um, in the, the, the activist circle you and I met in, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, is there coded language? To me, there's... Huh. Is there a coded language? What do you think? I don't think so, but two things have always popped up for me. The group that you and I met organizing in revolves around activities that need to be done while congressional offices are open, which is Monday through Friday during the day. Now, obviously, there are other things you can do, like writing postcards and that sort of thing. But there were so many key actions in like the first year that you and I were organizing together that if you have a regular job, you cannot participate in. And to me, that was one of the reasons why we found ourselves among such a kind of white population. I don't know if you see it that well, way, Well, wh- white, white and moneyed. And, th- and then the second thing is when you look at our district, our congressional district that we were organizing with other people, if you look at just the Austin piece of it, it's small. And we all live in like adjacent four adjacent neighborhoods, basically. Well, maybe not four, but you know what I'm saying. And they all kind of demographically have a similar makeup, and it is heavily white. 
think our whole well, yes, uh, well, and it, we've also been gerrymandered. I mean, yes, but that's my point. We're gerrymandered yes. in with a small group of people that all have like I don't know similar income levels, similar demographic makeup. The whole thing. I don't disagree with that, but I would also say that I think that the so you know the um what am I trying to say? There are organizations run by black Texans, black Austinites, people of color in Austin, that any one of us could have after the election said, hey, can I volunteer? Can I, you know, whatever. And and this is not, this is both a criticism and not a criticism because some of it's just, I think, how... um, I mean, I, I don't think it's unnatural that this happened, but what happened instead was we had people in our congressional district who were kind of waking up to uh, what was going on, including me, including, I think, you, mm-hmm. um, saying, hey, we're going to start something new, mm. or we're going to start something, and this is what we're starting, right? And... You know, and then there's a lot of conversation about, well, why isn't it more diverse? But I don't, but that came after the conversation of, are there people doing things around some of these issues already? Who are they and how can we help them or assist them or listen to them or whatever? I can say for for us, <laughs> we we did some of that outreach to those groups before the end of 2016 and didn't hear back. And so when 2017 rolled around and the calendar year began, we hit the ground running trying to connect with really anybody who would connect with us. So Right, right. Yeah, I mean, well, and also at the at the heart of a lot of this is just America is so segregated. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's so amazingly segregated that right. you know, it's it's not that hard for me now to say, well, why didn't we join this group or that group or, you know, shouldn't we have been listening when instead of taking action? But, you know, also a lot of great stuff has been accomplished through that group. So mm-hmm. um, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if, this is actually also very similar to a book group in that I'm now just babbling. <laughs> I'm now just babbling. Um, should I ask you a question? I'm going to yes. ask you a question. Okay, okay, go for it. So. Antoinette, I was I was really curious just about your reaction to this book as a whole, kind of from the beginning, um, because you know Robin D'Angelo uses the term "person of color" in contrast to whiteness, right? But a major focus of this book, maybe the focus, is also on anti-black racism specifically, and how anti-blackness is something that all white people. Um, just by virtue of growing up in America, mm-hmm. have, you know, in their system, right? right, um, And have to work to be aware of and to fight. So I'm wondering, I mean, you're someone who is not black. You are right. also a person of color. Right. Um, to what extent did you see yourself in these pages? To what extent did the description of whiteness ring true to your own mm-hmm. life? I mean, where... Where did you see yourself in? Because this book is is sort of a, a, a pretty much addressed to white people. 
Right. It is. And she spends a little bit of time talking about why it is that she's not going to include brown people in the discussion, but really to focus on black populations. Um, <clears throat> I, I did not feel in the book like um, I could relate to, obviously, all of the examples that she gave of oppression of black people because I am not a black person and I have not experienced those things. Um, on the flip side, I think that I did tend to read it more from, does this apply to me? Can I see myself in this? And I asked myself that continually throughout the book. Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting discussion a week or so ago with a couple of friends who we catch up every month or so together virtually because we all live in different states. And the issue of talking with other folks about Black Lives Matter and things like that when those folks lean conservative came up and the this question, very similar question kind of came up about how am I taking, you know, Black Lives Matter and what does that mean to me as a person who's not black but is also not white. And mm -hmm. I I was explaining to them that um you know, at this point in my life, I think that people will tend to categorize you um when they meet someone new, they'll categorize them and try to find a box that they fit in so that they know how to behave or how they want to act and um, and actually, Robin DeAngelo talks about this, this habitus concept, which mm -hmm. I actually had to go back and read a couple of times some of those pages to make sure I understood. Uh, but she says that, you know, in our social interactions, we tend to want to try to understand sort of where does the power reside and what's my role and how do I behave in this situation? And I think when people meet me, um, because I'm not black, I think the first identifier that they try to stick me in a box or put a label on me is that I'm a woman. Um, I think that the the color of my skin probably drops in next. And I believe that people get confused because they know my last name and then they see my skin color and my facial features. And I, I think that they're torn between whether I'm the good kind of brown or the bad kind of brown. And so there's a little bit of a struggle. And sometimes they will ask, like, you know, where are you from? What's your ethnic? Where are your people from? They never really ask it like what, that. When you, you know say the I'm good saying. kind and the bad kind, what do you mean? Um, I think that in the U.S., there is a good kind of brown that is more white adjacent. I just want and to be clear. You're putting this in quotes. It, uh, no, it, well, white adjacent. Uh, it's not quotes. I'm just. No, no, no. Good. 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 Is oh, did quotes. I? Okay. Uh, a, a, again, a good kind of brown is white adjacent. That means Got it. You, you could be as good as white. If you act like me, even though you look different from right, me. Right, 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 right. And white adjacent in the U.S. is typically like, you know, Asian people are white adjacent, right? Um, I think the bad kind of brown is, you know, Mexican. I mean, Got that's it. pretty much it uh, in Got the U.S. It. When you think of what people think of when they're like the bad kind of brown. And my last name is Perez. That is, right? So – I think that people get confused and sometimes there's a series of questions to try to ascertain which bucket they're going to put me in, which box or what label they're going to stick on me. Right. And if they can't get a good answer from me or they're not satisfied with that, um, I think that they take into consideration other types of factors like how I present myself, how I'm dressing, my education level, my accent, which is I'm told by voice people that my accent is a nonspecific North American accent. And because it's so neutral, 
Um, and, you know, if people know me by work, they know that I have a, a good, solid professional reputation. I think I'm starting to like rack up points. I'm starting to kind of lean more toward that white adjacent, put me in the good box. When you say people, you mean label. white people? Yes. Or all people? Um, I think all people at some point probably go through this. But I think that for white people, this is the the order of questions that they're not even necessarily consciously asking themselves. They're just right. going through this like process, right? right. Mentally. Um, and then the final quality about myself, because of course I can't represent all brown people. I'm just representing me. I'm small. I am not you are even, tiny. I'm yes. not average sized, right? And so that tends to, I think for many white people, put me in a very neat and tidy box because the small thing is like the ribbon on the box. It's like, she's harmless. <laughs> Generally speaking, that's true, but context makes a huge difference. And when you and I have gone to protests, rallies, even just meetings at mm -hmm. certain legislators' offices, I notice that the law enforcement official will walk right past the giant white guy and stand by me. They're going to not look at the white people, they come and stare at me. That has been my experience in the last few years going to various events like that. What about when you're past the security people and in the office? Do you find that the either gender, race, or smallness makes it so that the people you are meeting with are actually more dismissive of you? Or is that not an issue? Um, it's difficult to say because my emotions, my adrenaline is so up at that point, especially yeah. if there's security involved and we've had to wait in a line to be seen by the person that represents us for our three minutes this quarter that we get to see them. Like my adrenaline, my sometimes my rage is up so high that I'm just working on keeping my presentation um, to where it needs to be in the timeline, time limit that I have to the speaking points that I have. Um, and I, I don't know, like when I've gone into group visits where there are multiple folks, multiple issues, and we just have a set amount of time, I don't necessarily feel like I'm treated differently per se, um, because of any of those factors, but there is one office staffer who has nothing but a sour face for me 24 seven. And I do think that one is personal, whether it's racial or gender biased or whatever, I don't know, but she does not like me. Well, I do not like to visit her. It's personal. It's personal with her. I know exactly who you're talking about. And now I'm not sure if I answered your question. Did I? Did I answer your? Yeah. Question? I mean, you know, we're 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 book grouping. I, I read I it. I read it as a white adjacent person. I asked myself if everything Robin DeAngelo was saying, um, you know, is something that white people should be thinking about. I asked myself those questions. I thought about those. I am applying this to myself as yes. though I am white. Yeah. 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 No, that. You know, it's book group. We're we're informal. We're I don't like white wine, but I feel like I should be drinking some white wine. We'll bring that for for well, our next some, one some for white, sure. White fragility, white fragility wine. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so, second question. Okay. Second question. Okay. Go for it. So, Robin DeAngelo says in her book that she grew up in a poor neighborhood that happened to be very racially diverse, and that as she aged. Um, she continued to move her station in life to where 
she moved into wider and wider and wider spaces in her personal life. And similarly, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very racially diverse and attended public schools that were very diverse. And now that I've arrived at middle age and, you know, I'm getting close to probably my 30-year high school reunion, Mm -hmm. um, the neighborhood that I live in is nothing like the neighborhood that I grew up in, in any way, shape, or form. To my knowledge, and you know, I walk the dogs every day, um, I have seen one black person in my neighborhood. One. Uh, My closest social circles are all brown. They're all full of people that look like me or their kids look like me or whatever. I don't have any black friends in my closest social circle. So I'm curious, Lucas, how you would assess the racial diversity of your own social circle and neighborhood. Um, Yes. And, you know, have you done anything on purpose to keep it diverse? And if not, do you feel an, an impetus to change that? Okay. Oh, wow. Great. Love this. Great questions. Okay. So, I mean, I was thinking about, so I grew up in a highly, highly white, uh, sort of Jewish, mostly Jewish, well, I don't, maybe not mostly Jewish, but more Jews than, as a, as a Jew, I can, I can say this, <laughs> more Jews just than in your average neighborhood. Um <laughs> Good liberal suburban, uh, exactly the type of people, honestly, who this book is addressed mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because so growing up there was a ton, a ton of, and this was in in outside Boston, mm-hmm. uh, which we know notoriously uh, racist place, <laughs> Boston, Massachusetts, but um, you know there was so much emphasis on multiculturalism, diversity, all of these things mm-hmm. without addressing the systemic issue, which is, you know, housing segregation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there are choices all of our families have made that mm-hmm. are why we are in this situation in the first place. So, right. you know, growing up, and and I will say, you know, there were... um Attempts were made. Attempts mm-hmm. were made, I think. Um, you know, I grew up in my high school had had busing from Boston into into my suburb, mm-hmm. right? No busing the other way. There were no oh. none of the none of the, the Jewish kids were going to the predominantly black area, but wow. black students would be um you know, bussed into to our school. And so it it's interesting. So so that was a a fairly segregated situation. You know, again, uh, um, college definitely was the, probably the most diverse time in terms of social circle, in terms of just living, you know, that's what college is. You're mm-hmm. living with people from other places, right? Mm-hmm. And then my adult Austin life is, it's pretty damn white. Um, certainly our neighborhood is very white um and you know it yes it's definitely something i've thought about worried about wondered about um well not really wondered about that you know something i've thought about a lot and it it's interesting in you know when you're so i'm like 38 now right mm-hmm. um it is inter. I mean, 
I don't, I'm trying to be careful with how I say things because what I don't want to do is start listing off like, oh, I have this black friend or that black friend, which is exactly what Robin D'Angelo would say. <laughs> white, you know, I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I want to say I'm, I live in this predominantly white world with mm-hmm. exceptions, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting to think about how you get out of that situation if mm-hmm. it's not coming from your workplace for example right, i mean right. there there are certain places where there's less segregation mm-hmm. where i think those friendships and bonds can form mm-hmm. like college you know that's what's nice about co- you know depending on the college colleges right. also um and so i keep coming back to just like I'm I'm hyper aware of the systemic reasons why mm-hmm. we've ended up in this situation, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure I really have a great solution for in personal life, mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, are you gonna put out a personal ad that says Yeah You know, please, yeah. I, I want a more diverse neighborhood or right. I you know, I want black people to live in my neighborhood. I mean, that's you know problematic in, in many of its own ways. So um Wait, what was the question? Oh, God. <laughs> um, how would you assess, like, the racial diversity of your own world, and do you feel an impetus to change it? After Not reading great. this book. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I've uh, yes, yes. Not great, and yes. But also, well, no but. There's no but. I guess the but is just... It... Yeah. Uh, what like how the question is how is that what you're i think the question of how to do this on an individual level is important but Mm -hmm. it seems like it's less important to me and again it's like by me saying i think it's less important than something else i could Mm -hmm. see robin d'angelo saying well that's just because (laughs) you don't want to focus on you and there may be some truth to that but also i think it's less important than these systemic issues i mean we talked about last season how in Austin, Austin is segregated on purpose. Mm -hmm. It was segregated to force black Austinites Mm -hmm. to live east of the highway Mm -hmm. to give that Western space to white Austinites. And it's, it's like, I'm concerned on the individual level. Yes. But like also, what 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 are we doing at the root level to integrate mm-hmm. the society? Because that seems to me like kind so. Of I guess important. The, I feel like you impetus to kind of examine and address this on an individual personal level, and I'm also just to counter that, asking myself, can we do both? Can we oh, be challenging ourselves individually and also be changing things at the root level? Okay. All right. Well, I think you have one more question for me. Can I just say one other thing about this conversation? This because I think this is like that question's like the most important question that yeah. you just asked in is terms it? of okay. well, yeah, looking looking inward at mm-hmm. um each of our own lives. And I just think it's also I think the thing that's just sucks about segregation and the level of segregation we have is if we lived in an integrated <laughs> society mm-hmm. in terms of who your friends are, who your partners are, mm-hmm. who you're working with, all of those things, 
race would not be if if we were truly an integrated society, race mm-hmm. would not be kind of the driving force for that thing. It mm-hmm. would be shared interests, share you know, all of the mm-hmm. things that go into some people are your friends and some people aren't. And because we don't live in that society, there's almost like a, you know, I mean, your question is basically like, do you have black people in your life? And if not, how, you know, how do you get more of them? Mm -hmm. And it just feels like both really important, but then also like very like, not the question, but, you know, sort of objectifying and like, I mean, you know, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I guess I just kind of keep coming back to that question of now that we know that our society is deeply segregated, how can we diversify our own personal social circles to include as many perspectives as possible? Absolutely. Um, And I agree. Yeah. But I don't, I feel like I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I know, but I think we got to try and figure it out. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, okay, Antoinette. Yes. So you have some similarities to Robin D'Angelo in that you are both um, corporate trainers, though you work on different issues. The trainings you give are not on That's race right. or equity. It was only generally. in June of this year that I facilitated my first two meetings on race, ra- racial equity yeah. Which we could probably, t- yes. Okay. Um, I, I'll keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I have thoughts. Um, so she gives a lot of examples of how white fragility manifests itself in um, the training she gives. And I'm just wondering, even though your trainings are not on racial equity or mm-hmm. on these issues specifically, mm-hmm. do you recognize some of the behaviors she talks about? Um, has it changed how you see your own job? Are there things you do differently, et cetera? Um, you know, I think when I'm considering like specific experiences, the one that comes to mind immediately is not a race issue. It's more of a gender issue that came up during one of my trainings. And it had to do with a man who was feeling extreme pressure to produce in his sales business because his wife had stayed at home and essentially after, you know, 20 years or whatever, did not have a skill set to where either of them believed or maybe she had proved through failed job interviews that she was employable anymore. Right. And he was sort of lamenting this and... um I was able to kind of facilitate just through asking questions what an alternate reality might be like had she been able to do both spend quality time with her children when they were young as well as continue to work. And so that was an interesting thing to kind of see him wake up and open up. But that was not about race. That was about gender. Uh, There was another incident that I only remember because it almost felt out of body. Um, I guess you could say it was racial, but it was about immigration. And it was a very quick, lightning fast comment from someone in one of my classes on a break, but almost everybody was sitting in the class when he said this thing. He asked a question, and it was just so um, inappropriate and All I remember when I say it was out of body is I tried to remember what the question was, and I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it had something to do with borders and immigration. And I just made it clear 
we were not going to talk about this. Like, A, I didn't agree with what he said. And B, this was not up for discussion. Um, he took it. Everybody just moved on. And uh, and we went on. I don't see race issues in my work um, in a an individual way as much as I feel mm-hmm. like I see it in a systemic way, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in public speaking, if you look in corporations, corporate America, corporate events, as we used to do them pre-COVID, um, I would always go through the speaker roster and I would look at the number of men versus women speakers and the number of speakers of color, um, LGBTQ speakers, you know, I look for diversity. I feel like hearing different voices and seeing the world through different perspectives is so important for all of us. Absolutely. And to that end, you know, knowing that I'm sort of like a, I'm a corporate trainer for hire. So I I teach other companies curricula and those kinds of things. I have really focused on how, my ability to help other people improve their public speaking skills is uh, a, a unique talent. And I try to use that to help other people. So two years ago, um, I approached three women of color that were successful business people that had really compelling personal stories. And we worked on getting their messages Uh, put together and crafted and finding stages for them to be on. And I know that's really like a tiny thing. And in fact, throughout that year, I ended up working with about six or seven women of color. Um, It seems like it's tiny, but it felt like something very tangible and real that I could do to help change who is showing up on stages and to diversify that. Because when I was a kid, I never saw anybody that looked like me in a position of leadership. And Mm -hmm. I want to change that. This I get behind. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's that's great. That's fantastic. Right. Um, well, I think that we have talked about quite a bit in terms of the content and our takeaways from it. Yes. Um, why don't we take another quick break? And then when we come back, we'll just kind of do a little bit of a summary and wrap up of our episode today. I just want to I just want to say we did say three questions, but we 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 chattered. So we're moving on. We're moving on. We're moving on. We had two each. We're moving on. I love it. Okay. We'll be right back. Okay. We are back. I was just saying to Antoinette, oh man, I didn't really like how I answered that second question. And it's, but I, I'm like, okay, this is good because, you know, these, yes. Because the whole point of the book is that we should be uncomfortable. In fact, one of the most salient points, not only from this book, but from the academic paper that Robin DeAngelo wrote that preceded the book White Fragility, she talks about the difference between whites feeling uncomfortable talking about race, but saying they feel unsafe. And she points out to me uh, just so artfully that no one is is putting you in danger by talking about race. There's no risk to your health in talking about race. You may feel uncomfortable, but uncomfortable is not the same as unsafe. So yes. I think it's totally fine. for It's appropriate for us to feel a little uncomfortable and unsure, right? Absolutely. I yeah. Could I just say, I just want to follow up briefly on one thing, which is that in terms of just as a writer, I, I feel this strongly, 
is that, and since we're apparently a book club, though, I keep resisting that you that do. term. But I mean, I do think one just important thing all of us can do immediately, um, and this sounds silly, but I, I do think it's, I actually do believe in it, is just through your reading life right mm-hmm. and your mm-hmm. viewing life and your listening life yes. um you know if every book you're reading in a year or even 80% of them right are by white men or by white people generally right yeah you know i mean that's something i'm i'm definitely conscious of but it's also not like a chore it's like oh you actually get much better selections when right. you're opening yourself up to this entire country and this entire world so that's that there in. are there are many 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 great curated lists out there and challenges that you can join to diversify what you're reading and what you're watching but i would just say also just as someone who i mean i do think i i'm a pretty um eclectic reader it, i it, you know it's not a you don't do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the better reading experience <laughs> and True. viewing experience True. and all of True. those things to, you know, I mean, one thing she, she, D'Angelo mentions that I really like is we, we lose out through mm-hmm. racism and segregation. Like right. we, we white people. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on. Um, as book clubbers, may I run through a very quick list? I'll run through it quickly of like yay and nay. I'll start with a nay. Yes. I just have a couple of nays. When it comes to this book, if you have not read it yet and you're debating, you know, whether to read it, do you read a summary? Do you just listen to the podcast and not read it? Mm-hmm. Here are a couple of things that for me personally, I found problematic. The structure of the book was not strong to me. And I am someone as a reader who needs structure. I benefit very much from understanding how we're moving from one section to the other. And therefore, flow was never established for me. I had a very hard time getting We're moving just into like book criticism. Yeah. I mean, this is the book club part, right? It's a book club. Um, We're a book club. It's a book club. We're a book club. Um, The style to me was dry. I would have appreciated more metaphor. Um, There was a great video by a young black organizer. probably middle of June, where she talked for like six minutes and she used the metaphor of um, black oppression in the last several hundred years to playing Monopoly with starting, yeah, yeah, starting at go with nothing every single time and not even getting your $200 for pass and go. That type of metaphor, I think, is so powerful. And I wish that there had been more metaphor. And Robin DeAngelo might have done this on purpose because she didn't want to mess around. But I know that as a reader, I find a better experience with metaphor. And I would have liked fewer bullet point lists. I just my eyes would glaze over and I would have to, you know, try to avoid the temptation to just keep flipping through and glancing at it and really read it. Um, they felt a little monotonous to me. That was my nay list. Did you have any nays on your list? I mean, look, this is not the, the writing in this book is not thrilling. <laughs> Riveting. I mean, it's, it's the content is, is important and interesting. Um, the content you know, is great. Yeah. If, if you're looking for uh, a page turner, I, well, yes. this is a page turner in that it's it's interesting, but yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. 
On the yay end, content had a lot of sub-bullet points. The uncomfortable versus unsafe was big. I had never read that until Robin DiAngelo, and it made all the sense in the world to me. Yes. Um, the fact that she covers both systemic structural racism and individual racism in the ways that are making us uncomfortable that you're hearing right now in this podcast recording, mm-hmm. that's great. Um, the fact that she's really targeting a very specific audience of white progressives and a lot of her messaging. She spends an entire chapter on the good-bad binary. If you're good and you're not racist, then you're not making overt gestures. She does a really nice job of that. Um, And I think her chapter on white women's tears was pretty fascinating. So content wise, there's great, great stuff in this book from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think all of her anecdotes and personal experiences were... um, were really useful. They were great demonstrations of what she was talking about. And she's consistent in her messaging. So she's got that going for her. Yeah. And and I will also say, having read a bunch of the criticism, I actually uh, found much of it convincing um, as well. The the criticism from... not not conservative criticism, right? Yeah. That that was not. Uh, you can find some of that too. Just like, oh, we're talking about this too much. I mean, I think that's silly, but right. yeah. Um. So I just want to say for future books that we read, I am not a read the criticism before I watch the movie or read the book. So I will probably never read the criticism until after I've read the book. Just a heads up on that. Um, When we kind of turn our attention to white fragility and how it's showing up recently, I Mm -hmm. just happened to see a video again yesterday. In fact, I'd never seen the video, but I had read a Texas Tribune article on what had happened in the video. It was of Texas Senator John Cornyn in a Senate hearing back in June about race. And he goes into this ridiculous, I don't think I understand what you're saying Uh, Are you telling me that if systemic racism exists, that everyone is racist, incredulously asked? Um, I think that this type of toxic approach to understanding white supremacy is uh, it's everywhere right now if we just pay attention. So we're going to link to that Tribune article and video in the show notes. Love it. I mean, I don't love it, but I love that we're linking. <laughs> I love that we're linking to it. What else do we have in the news for white fragility, Lucas? I mean, literally everything in the. I mean, you know, why are we in this position in the first place of the country having the white people in this country having a nervous breakdown? True. And, True. I mean, <laughs> it's you know. The the idea, I just want to point out that it is so important to, and, you know, here's the other annoying thing about this, is the racism is so overt on the right side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And and what I like about this book is Robin DiAngelo saying, well, yes, but let's Uh, look inside, right? Good, yep. So I just want to preface this by saying, when I say this, this is not a reason not to look inside and Mm -hmm. to do all of that work, which is just as important. But just in terms of white fragility just in the news, I mean, we're currently in a situation where Republicans, 
by and large white, are so committed to holding on to power. Mm -hmm. um, And there's a racialized edge to that want, if you Mm -hmm. will. I mean, they're, they're motivated by racism, right? That they're willing to do things like delay the mail, Mm -hmm. which is delaying medication to old white people in rural parts of the country that people who vote for them anyway, sometimes, right? I mean, it's just, it, racism does make you like insane, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why, yeah, I don't. And you're know. right. It it is an underpinning for everything you read in the news right now. Pretty. Much. I mean, it's it's and also with all of this, I mean, it has been interesting to see, you know, you know, tons of white allies marching and speaking out and putting up signs and doing all of that, but still a lot of, um sort of not in my backyard attitudes when it comes to affordable housing. I mean, there have been plenty of stories about this recently of, you know, the same people who have a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard also have a sign opposing, you know, an affordable housing building that's supposed to be right. coming in or opposing efforts to integrate. That happens or happens a lot in our neighborhoods, doesn't it? Yours and mine specifically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. or there's, you know, there's this new podcast um that the New York Times is putting out that I good white I think it's called good white is it called good white people okay. good white neighbors good white oh my I don't god know it, sorry. I'm such a podcaster I just say this stuff and <laughs> who knows but you know it's sort of about this this same sort of liberal progressive mm-hmm. you know hypocrisy mm-hmm. on on the issue I, well I don't know. Lucas I, mean, I think that your assistant has had a long enough vacation that you should you know yank him by the scruff and. Pull him back in and have him pull do him that back research. in. Well, Identify we'll that podcast assistant. On, on a different episode, we'll have to um, pulling by the scruff is reminding me of one thing that did happen during our break was that Greg, my husband, and I did attempt to adopt a dog and we failed. So maybe on a on a later episode, I will tell that tale of woe. <laughs> I don't know if we can avoid it. It's a great story. Um, We know that you may have read White Fragility and you may have some thoughts on the book or you just may have an experience that you want to share with us about any or all of the topics that we've discussed today. Answer any of those questions that we just asked. Yes, that's a great idea. So where are they going to do that, Lucas? Okay. Oh, this is I've been looking forward to this. Listen, 702. 907 rage <laughs> that's 702 907 rage and and what are the numbers that correspond to that do you have those okay. handy you know i'm gonna let me get my phone out because yep. i'm not that smart just um we, yeah we'll put them in on the, the keyboard system. so 702 907 seven two four three excellent Seven zero two nine zero seven seven two four three. This is like a spelling test. It's a math test. It's all of the things. <laughs> um, any of those questions, Antoinette and I um, asked each other. Uh, any other comments? Any other feedback? If you want to see us on YouTube, all of those things, give us a call. Um, we are also available at 
ohthisworldpod at gmail.com. We're at ohthisworldpod on Twitter, on Instagram. Antoinette, we have a Patreon. Yes, we do. How do how do people find that Patreon? You can go to patreon.com forward slash ohthisworldpod. Oh, oh, this world pod. So if you would like to support us, I mean, by listening to us, you're already supporting us. If you would like to support us monetarily, that is also appreciated. Not really support us, but support the, the um, production of this podcast. The production is not free. We will not be retiring off of the uh, Patreon Patreon proceeds, but we thank you for them. Um, you know, I've had a month, Antoinette, to learn what I need to say in terms of how to rate and review this world on the various things, because there are some different instructions. And of course... I still kind of don't know. So here's um, what I know. Uh, Apple Podcasts is the only platform that allows you to rate and review out of pretty much all of them. I didn't know that until a couple weeks ago. I did not. Thank you, Holly, yeah. for your education on that. Our Thank friend you, Holly, Holly helped us with that. Listen, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we're at Stitcher. We're at Apple Podcasts. We're at Spotify. We're at all of the things. I'm sure sure we missed one. If so, 702-907-RAGE. Let us know. Uh, (laughs) Rage out. Thank you for listening. Oh, and just to be clear, so the topic for the next month is um, white white fragility, white white privilege. I said all of the, when we were discussing this, Antoinette, I said it was all of the bad whites. Fragility, supremacy, nationalism. Right. Privilege. Right. All the bad white things. Join us next week. Join us next week. We're going to have a guest and we're going to have an interview and it will be great. We're going to have a guest. We're going to have an interview and it will be great. (laughs) All right, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Bye.